Okay, so, so last week we, um, and really, when I think about it, it's probably the key week of the whole study. If you want to know the New Testament, you must know the Old Testament. It's so important to know the Old Testament, and if you're not reading regularly in the Old Testament, begin yesterday, I mean today, okay? Um, Old Testament is very, very important, as it's quoted constantly in the New Testament, allusions, and Jesus Christ and his ministry is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament. One thing I did not talk about last week is, is having a typological approach to the New Testament. In other words, and the ministry of Jesus. In other words, Jesus does more than fulfill uh, this passage in Isaiah chapter, chapter 7, uh, this passage in Jeremiah 23, this passage in Micah uh, chapter 5. If you just look for individual prophecies of, of Jesus' fulfillment and see, oh, this is fulfilled, then you're going to miss a lot of stuff about, about Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of the sacrificial system. He is the second Adam. Um, he is uh, Israel reduced to one. Uh, he is the true, true king. So, so as you look at the Old Testament, you're seeing that the entirety of the Old Testament is pointing to, to Jesus and his work, not just a few isolated passages, because otherwise the Old Testament is so huge, and they have to ask the question, what's up with Second Chronicles? What's up with the book of Ruth, et cetera, like, like that? So, um, so I, and, and that's a whole other discussion. I won't, I won't go into it today about how to read the, the New Testament in light of the Old Testament. That's a, that's a really much deeper discussion. Uh, if you haven't gotten your sheets, they're all on the, on the table right next to the free will offering basket. Okay, so having said that, are there any questions that you would like to be answered? I, I am going to cover a couple, couple Old Testament type questions. One is this very important translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. At some point in time, I don't know if we'll get to it today. And the second one will be the canon of the Old Testament. In other words, when you read your Old Testament, I mean, and in, 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 in our modern times, you hear such silliness that's, that, that would say that, that people got together um, and, and there's all these other books, especially when we get to the New Testament canon, and, and these, um, you know, obviously these patriarchal, um, um, White males, yeah, 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 yeah. And so, and so like, like these bunch of white males in the Bible, it's, it's so ridiculous. Uh, um, they got together and intentionally then kicked out all these, all these other books that should have been in the Bible, and therefore we've obscured the message of, of Jesus, which is only one of love, and you do whatever you want, right? And so, okay. Yeah, I'm being a little bit histrionic right here, but, but really, you read some ridiculous stuff that is, but when you understand how the canon was formed, and you understand what, what both the Old Testament and the New Testament canons, they're formed separately, obviously, that, that the picture just doesn't work out. just doesn't work out. Um, yeah, and so it leads to the question, maybe I've told this Bible class, but I've told other people, you know, many years ago in confirmation, I was in, I was in Austintown, Ohio, one of the confirmation students raised their hand and said, Pastor, why are there no blacks in the Bible? Because all the Bible story pictures, you don't see any blacks, right? I shot back immediately. Why are there no whites in the Bible? There are no white people in the Bible. Their skin color, you know, if um, maybe, maybe, maybe Julius Caesar, because Caesar had not yet 
Rome had not yet conquered Britain, but maybe Julius Caesar had brought back as slaves a couple of the Britons, right? And, and, these, uh, and, and they would have been, you know, that maybe, maybe, but they aren't going to be in the Bible. There are no white people in the Bible. This is ridiculous. And this whole concept of race is actually a modern construct. It's a modern construct, and, and they're actually very closely related to, to the secularization of society and the decline of the church brought about by, by ridiculous theories. And so this whole idea of race, and the idea of race, okay, I'm, I'm ranting and railing right now, is, is so, so stupid. You know, because um, if you look even even last, say, 150 years, what does it mean by white person? You know, 120 years ago, somebody, a wasp, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant in the United States of America would not have considered an Italian or Spaniard white. Because look at them, they aren't white. You know, I mean, I mean, so, so it's just this whole concept of race is so, so stupid. I mean, it's, it's beyond stupid, but yet it's very powerful, okay? So... Let's talk about the background to the New Testament. Any other questions? Well, yes, go ahead. Are there writings from this period that the Jews would uh, consider sacred writings in the Jewish religion? That, I mean, obviously we don't have any sacred okay. writings that we yeah. consider yeah. from this period, but there were writings. We talked about right. that last time. There's, there's, and, there's, and are there, you know, there's a huge amount of literature, actually. We're, we're very blessed to have a huge amount of literature uh, from the intertestamental period. Are there other writings? And this is a key question. Okay, you're, you're, we're jumping the gun, but I'll answer very, very succinctly so that in case you're not here next week, the, the Old Testament canon, if you were to go into any Jew in Jerusalem at the time of Jesus and ask them, name me the books of the, of, of the sacred scriptures, they'd rattle off the books and they would be our 39. Except in they had, depending on how you number them, they'd be either 22 or 24, because the, all the minor prophets is called the Book of the Twelve. Okay, so so at the time of Jesus, we know what at Jesus' time. If you ask anyone in Galilee, anyone in Jerusalem, what are the books of the Old of, of what are the states of the scriptures that would have been there? Now, if you go outside, Jews outside who were Greek speakers, also had some other books, and eventually they came in. But I'm going to, I would discuss that with them. But if you went, I would discuss that another time. But the key point is, is if you were in the Holy Land at the time of Jesus, and you said, what are our holy writings? What we have now is the Old Testament. My Hebrew Bible has the same context. We will talk about, there were two books that the issues not their canonicity, but just whether or not they're the same quality, and that's a little bit of a nuanced term, whether or not they're inspired, Esther and Ruth. Esther and Ruth, because the character of those, of those, of those books, Esther, for example, never mentions the word God. Whether or not they would, they would, if you misuse those books, would they defile the hands in the same way as if you misused Exodus? You know, because Exodus is one of the prime books of the Old Testament, right? So, so it's not a question of whether or not they should be part of the Bible, but to what extent we should regard them as, 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 um, as special. Well, that's yes. interesting, because we're talking a period of, what, 400 years? Yeah, 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 and, yeah. And no other writings were considered no, Right, exactly, 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 exactly. So, and so, um, but, but when you read, you, you discover that now, were other writings helpful? Yes. And were other writings known? Yes. 
But we'll talk about that when I get to the Old Testament canon and, and that, and, uh, and, and obviously, and, and we're very blessed, actually, uh, Old Testament canon. I, I was rereading the arguments I read about 12, 15 years ago. Um, uh, one of our professors, a Missouri synagogue, uh, Andy Steinman, teaches at Concordia, Wisconsin, wrote a book about, essentially, about this issue of the canonicity, and, and, he, and he was showing how, um, how the canon, you know, a, a correct way of thinking, and that, and, and, and you have to understand that many people, when they put these, these theories forward to doubt the canon, they have a hidden agenda. In other words, they want to prove the Bible wrong. And so therefore they develop a theory to prove the Bible, which is not really good evidence. I mean, that's to, to, you should not develop a theory in response to what, to what you have there. So it's a great question. Yes, Dave. So obviously the Maccabees appeared between this. Yes. Where did the other books of the Apocrypha, at what point did the other books of the Apocrypha appear? That's a great question. Let me, let me give you a, a timeline. Maybe I should speak about, about the Apocrypha as a sideline to the question of, of the canon of the Old Testament. Let me do that next week, okay? Uh, but it's a great question. So you have a li- little, little hint for you. If it wasn't for St. Augustine, this whole question of the Apocrypha wouldn't be here. St. Augustine, who's a Western church father, not in the East, not a Greek speaker, he's the one that, 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 that gets this whole idea rolling that eventually is, and by the way, in the Roman Catholic Church, the Apocrypha is not recognized as canonical, in the truest sense of the term, un- a- until after response to Martin Luther's <clears throat> Reformation. So, so, and you always have to remember, remember how this happened, a lot of stuff happened in the Roman Catholic Church as a response to the Reformation and Luther. Okay, so today we're going to discuss this period, uh, kind of convenient, and it makes a great, great title, doesn't it? You know, the, this 400 years period. Malachi to Matthew. In other words, from um, 430 B.C., and whether or not you, you want to talk about when New Testament books are written, be closer to 500 years, or just if you say Jesus is born in, in 4, 3, 5 B.C., uh, 425 years. It kind of can, um, some people, just for convenience, and, and for your minds, Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament, just say 400. You could say, um, are, there, are we out of sheets? Oh, we got extras over here. So are there enough sheets for you? Okay. If not, we got extras over here, and we can, um, a couple people can share. Okay. So, so there are various periods, and I have maps for you to t- talk about what happened in this period uh, from, from the return for exile, which is 538, to the time of Jesus, and, and it's a really different world. If you, when you leave the Old Testament, Judah is sitting there as a far-off province of the Persian Empire. Then all of a sudden, it came to pass in those days that went out a decree from Caesar Augustus. What? You know, what happened? I mean, this is a, the, the whole world has changed. The Old Testament is written in what language? Hebrew. And there is some Aramaic in the book of, especially the book of, uh, of Daniel. Okay, it's an offshoot of, of Hebrew. The New Testament is written in Greek, and especially a dialect called Koine Greek. It's not Attic Greek, which would be like um, um, Aristophanes and uh, Aristotle and, and Plato would have, would have, um, would have written in. Um, so we'll talk about that a little bit later on. 
So there's problems when they get back from the exile. They, mean they, they start the temple because the temple is very important because the temple is the place of sacrifice. They start the temple, but then if you read, there's some trouble with the, with the local peoples, and so it gets delayed. Finally, they get a decree from the Persian ruler that, yes, this is true, the decree of Cyrus. And so now they finish the temple about 516 B.C., and the walls of Jerusalem under Nehemiah are completed at 445 B.C., and Malachi is written around 430. Okay, now the good news is during the, the Persian time, which will be... Um, from, from, say, from 538 to 3, 332, this is a, actually not a bad time to be a Jew in Judah because the Persians, as long as you don't make trouble, they don't care. So they, they reinstitute the temple worship. Uh, they pretty much can function, you know, um, and, and everything's going fairly well for them, so, so it's not a bad time. However, um, we do have major populations of Jews, and, and my vocabulary is shifting now to more talk about Jew as what we're doing right now, and I haven't, I'll get to the major branches of Judaism at the time of Jesus, Pharisee, Sadducee, Essene, but also talk about, um, talk about, for example, what is it meant to be a zealot, you know, um, up in Galilee at the time of Jesus, because one of Jesus' disciples is Simon Zelotes, Simon the Zealot. What? What's Jesus hanging on these folks? Tax collector, Zealot? Who's this Jesus? Why is he doing this? Okay, go ahead. Oh yeah. They, they they collect taxes. Yeah, I don't know. I, I would imagine okay, you're that's above my pay grade. I do not know the currency of, of the Persian Empire, but there would have been some sort of currency. Yes, they want money, and yes, they they have authority in that area. Yes, there would have been some Persian to oversee that area because they don't want, like any empire, you don't want the far-off provinces to get any sort of idea that they could um, possibly rebel because you like the income going in. Yeah, it was a profit-making venture for the Persians. Yeah, you don't, you know, no one starts an empire to say the far-off portions of our empire should be a drain on us. You know, that you, you really don't do that for an empire. You want, you want to get glory and grandeur for your capital back in Susa um, for yourself. But, but if you notice the orientation, Persia's modern day, if you look at the map right here, Persia is, is way over there on the far right where the beginning of the red line is. And this, this shows um, where they came out of. Um, it's, it's very much, so, so Judah would be very, very much on the western side of this, which you're now going to discover by the time we get to the time of Jesus is the world is flipped because it's no longer centered on Persia, what's going on in Persia, especially if you read the book of, of Esther. And now in the New Testament, it's now centered on what's going on in Rome. So the world is going to shift. I mean, it's like a 180 shift, and, and, and there's so much to go into that. So, okay. So, um, so now you have major populations that did not leave Babylon, did not leave Persia, and also many, many people from Judah had fled to Egypt. So there's a significant Jewish population, especially in Alexandria what we will call the region about Alexandria. Alexandria obviously cannot be called Alexandria yet. 
because Alexander hasn't come yet, but now he will. Okay, so, um, from a secular perspective, perhaps there has been no more important person in all of world history than Alexander the Great. He deserves the title Great. Now, notice we don't call him Alexander the Good. You know, um, Alexander, I mean, it, 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 it's almost beyond comprehension to understand what Alexander did in his short lifespan. His father's Philip, Alexander um, uh, succeeds after his father's murdered. Question is, did he have a hand in his father's murder? That's a whole other question, and I don't know, I, don't, I haven't gone deep enough, but it is a question whether or not uh, it was kind of convenient for Alexander to get power when he, when he did. So Alexander is a Macedonian who rules over this Greek area. Um, he's a phenomenal leader, and, and he starts marching. And he starts marching, and he starts marching. He, he is, is absolutely brilliant because he not only is a tremendous military leader, both in terms of organizing his troops, also in battle, but also in, in setting up order where he has conquered. It's a rare, rare thing in military leader. He's probably the greatest of all time. It's absolutely tremendous what Alexander does. Um, so he starts out and he goes and he eventually conquers the Persian Empire. And, and uh, um, I know there's two different names. The name I know by the Battle of Gogamela, right? I don't know where Gogamela is. Uh, Adam, do you know where Gogamela is? I mean, there you go. Okay, so Mesopotamia. He, he, he defeats, I, I think from what I read the account of the battle, is that essentially the battle was over in the first 15 minutes because Alexander, the way he placed his troops, he, and he roused the Persian army, and essentially then he, he conquers the Persian Empire. So how does a Macedonian conquer the Persian Empire? Because Alexander is greatness, but Alexander does not stop. Alexander will go all the way over to, to India. There he stops, and, um, and, and then eventually he dies. And of course, how does Alexander die? It's a little bit sh shrouded in mystery. Was it just because of his own, um, you know, wild lifestyle and his excessive drinking and partying or did somebody slip him something and he is dead is it, it's, a, it's a question so so alexander dies okay so well what happens i mean he dies young so when, when an important person in history dies young he usually has not set up things to follow after his death so alexander's empire will be divided up into four um ways and and whoever organizes this did not organize it well, because you have to turn to your next page. Okay. The editor here should be fired. Well, I guess we don't have a Bible study then, right? And so, it's, uh, um, so it kind of gives you color-coded um, who the four people are, and, and the two people that are important is down in Egypt, a guy named Ptolemy, and the guy who has the big pink area, a rather large area, right? Seleucus. Okay. And, now, the other areas, like in Thrace and, and Macedonia itself, are not minor because, obviously, this is much closer to Alexander's homeland. Those two guys uh, do pretty well, but we won't even be concerned about them. How's that sound? Okay. So, now what happens is that, um, is that this guy who rules Egypt, at first, for the first 130 years after Alexander's death, uh, 
um, the Egyptians, the Egyptian ruler, his name's Ptolemy. And by the way, he's Greek. And his line will continue on in Egypt all the way to the famous Cleopatra, right? And so, um, so you have Greeks ruling and, of course, intermarrying and stuff like this in Egypt during this whole time. Um, um, and so the Ptolemies rule in, in Egypt, and they're Greek-speaking. And so this is very, very important. So Greek culture is brought to Egypt and brought to this whole area. Right, right here. So now, if, if you think about it, in a short period of time, the dominant um, language in terms of court and everything, and politics, has now changed from Persian to Greek. And, and that, I'll talk about that in, in, in a few minutes, what some of the implications of that. It's rather, rather huge. So, so Seleucus is ruling Egypt, is in the east, and he's concerned mainly with the per, old Persian Empire. And that'll, over time, kind of break up because it's a rather large area. And that's a whole other question, what, what happens right that, For example, the Parthians become independent, et cetera, like this. But I don't want to go into that as much as, as talk right now what's going on in the Holy Land. So in the Holy Land, as far as you're concerned, the Ptolemies are there, and they're all right. Just like I talked about, underneath the Persians, they're, they're fine. And everything's going pretty well for them. Um, no one really messes with them. So also in the Ptolemies, things are going pretty well. The Ptolemies, you just do fine. Of course, you pay taxes, you give money back to Ptolemies, whoever the Ptolemy, Ptolemaic ruler would be. Yes, of course, everything's fine. And by the way, this is very, very important to understand because this helps you in the New Testament. I did not write this down. It's called, um, it's called, when you listen to a podcast while walking around, you don't write it down. The, um, the person ruling in Judah, oh, of course, can't be a king. It's effectively the high priest. The high priest. He's the one running the show. And so hence, when you get in the New Testament, it's very important, for example, who's the high priest under the time, at the time of Jesus' death is? Caiaphas, right? And his father, Annas, had been the high priest before him. And so we, we see this, especially in, in the details. And this is one of the fun things about archaeology is that we have the burial ossuary of Caiaphas. Isn't that amazing? You know, so, so obviously the, the New Testament is a bunch of fiction. Oh, except in you have an ossuary, um, vocabulary word. Raise your hand if you're not completely sure what an ossuary is. Not completely clear, okay. Okay. So, yeah, no, that's why I asked the question that way. An ossuary would be, you, how you bury somebody, you don't put them in a wood casket, because the wood's expensive, right? So you have this cave, right? And it's got a shelf. You take your relative, you shroud them up, and you put them on the shelf. Well, 20 years later, when the next family death occurs, because you might have more than one shelf in there, the rich people, right? Okay, you go in there, and the, and the flesh has been decayed, so you take the bones of your deceased loved one, and you put them together, and you put them in an ossuary. Uh, it's ossuary comes from a Greek word for bone. So this is a, um, so a bone box. So the bone box for, for Caiaphas, we, we have found. And it's kind of, kind of interesting. But, um, and the always to bring up this is, is see, if all these people doubting the Bible here, there, and everywhere, at one time they, um, I'm a little bit ahead of myself, they doubt it. This Pontius Pilate, he's just a figment of, of uh, of uh, the gospel writer's imagination. Well, 
in Caesarea Maritima, they dig up this big stone and it's inscribed, Pontius Pilate, governor. Oh, maybe he did live. You know, so uh, just over and over again, you you have this ridiculous stuff right right here. Uh, There's a great podcast this week on issues, et cetera, where Paul Meyer, who's been here at Bethany before speaking, talks about some of these, these issues. Okay, so Ptolemy's, everything's kind of good. High priest, and everything's good. Sacrificial assistance, everything's good. But as you would expect, when people, people who are rich and have power, they're not satisfied with being rich and having power. So the Seleucid ruler up in Syria decides, I want more wealth, more power, more land, and he conquers the Holy Land, Judah especially, okay? So now we're underneath the Seleucids. At first it's all right, but, um, but then there comes Antiochus, Antiochus III is, is the one who does this, 202 BC. But then he has a son, Antiochus Epiphanes, the glorious one, the fourth. And this guy um, um, is kind of ruthless and stuff like this, but he also has a problem. Is that, is that meanwhile, while all this is happening, a city-state on the Tiber, over centuries, has decided that it wants to be big and bad. Rome. And, and remember, I, I call it a city-state. This is the marvelous thing about history. It's a city-state, this, uh, built on seven hills on Tiber River, they get really good about fighting and holding power. Eventually take the Italian peninsula, etc., like this. And what's going on at this time, around the year 200 BC, is that Rome is heading east, especially because Asia Minor has money. And Egypt has money, grain, right? And Rome, we need lots of grain and stuff like this. And, and, and so Rome's kind of pushing east. They haven't conquered this area yet, but they're trying to work out good treaties and stuff like this. So Antiochus Epiphanes has, a, has some battles against Rome. He loses, and if you lose to Rome, Rome didn't want to take over this area, but they said, pay us tribute. And so what does Antiochus Epiphanes need? He needs to pay tribute, he needs money, right? Well, this one um, uh, person uh, decides, well, I'll just bribe to be the high priest in Judah, since he's ruling. I will bribe, and I think I have his name right, right here, yeah, um, Jason, who actually has legitimate stand as far as being a high priestly family. I will bribe Antiochus Epiphanes to make me high priest. Well, Menelaus says, I'll give you more money. But Menelaus is an Zedekite. Menelaus is a usurper to the high priesthood. And so he gives money, and Tigers Epiphany says, there, you're the high priest. Well, the Jews don't like this. And, and in Judah at this time, and in Galilee, and the Samaritans are a whole other question. We'll talk about the origin of Samaritans next, next week. I got a lot of next weeks, right, by the way, right? You know, so in other words, um, I, I, I can talk about it, but I need to brush up a little bit because it's rather convoluted history, like all this. So, so what happens is that, um, it, that in, among the Jews, both in Galilee and in Judah, there are, are more than one type of Jews, but essentially, broadly speaking, there are Jews who want to be political Jews. In other words, we want to have our own kingdom, but there are also Jews that are extremely, extremely um, zealous for the faith. 
And of course, they don't like, you know, that you got a usurper as high priest. They don't like how the high priest has been politicized. They want pure temple worship. They want pure, pure religion, right? And so they kind of form a union. And so there's a rebellion. This guy named Judas Maccabeus um, leads a rebellion. And it's rather bloody. And there's a lot of things going back and forth. And by 164 BC, he has some limited freedom. I think by what, 140 BC, total freedom for, for, for Judah. And so he sets up something called the Maccabean Kingdom. The Maccabean Kingdom. The Maccabean Kingdom um, is, so it's set up in, uh, in, in Judah. Now, what happens, okay, um, and I don't want to go everything about, about their vote. I'll talk about Helen. Remind me to come back to Hellenism, okay? Okay, who, who edited this? I don't know. Actually, I had a problem because I wanted to be on, on, on four sides, so I could have two sheets of paper, and Hellenism, um, and, and as well as the diaspora map, it didn't work out, so, so I, I, I did it out of place. So it was a method, so I didn't want three sheets of paper here. So I wanted to save the trees because I'm a good environmentalist, right? So, okay. Okay, um, so, so what happens now, Judea becomes independent, and then gradually, if you look at this map carefully, there's a little color code, the Maccabean rulers get to be rather, rather successful. And, and so gradually, what happens is not only is Judah part of the Maccabean kingdom, but also Galilee, and it becomes almost the same territory as during the time of King David. Not quite but close enough. But there's obviously not a Davidic line there. And the, the Maccabean ruler is manipulating the high priesthood. And so there's all sorts of different things. And the Maccabean rulers are very Hellenized. We're going to talk about that in just a, a minute, what that means. So there's some bitter disputes. And so um, there's like different Maccabean, and, and if you read this, it's like everyone's killing somebody else. And it's like, it, it, it's really, it's a, it's a bloody mess. And so, and so, and, and it helps you understand one reason why the Pharisees developed, because they got tired of all this. They said, this is not pure religion. We are opposing the Maccabean kingdom. And that's, um, but so you have different, different factions. This guy named Hyrcanus the, the second, um, has a brilliant idea. I need some muscle to make sure that I become king. And by the way, there's an there's a Idumean, that's somebody from ancient Edom, who's really the power behind Hyrcanus, and Hyrcanus is kind of his puppet. This guy's named Antipator, whose son will be Herod. Okay. And so Antipater is like the, the guy behind, and so he, they, they get this idea, let's bring in some muscle. There's this wonderful, very successful Roman, he's pretty good at doing things, named Pompey. We'll make sure that he puts us in power. Sure, we'll give you some muscle. And so Pompey comes in, Hyrcanus, your ruler. And do the Romans leave? No, 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 no. Oh, the history tells you that the Romans uh, are, are they, Romans want an empire. Okay. You know what? Pompey is going to do something really bad, but really it follows even less than what Antiochus Epiphanes did to really make the Jews mad. Antiochus Epiphanes, 
hears about the temple in Jerusalem, he comes back in because he's upset because, because these Jews have been rebelling against Menelaus being his high priest. And he actually desecrates the temple and he turns the temple into Jerusalem, into a temple to Zeus for three years. If you want to galvanize Jews against yourself, I don't care whether you're a political, Hellenized, or any type of Jew, you turn the temple into a temple to Zeus. And so obviously this galvanized Jews is one of the reasons that Jewish Maccabeus is able to, to conquer and to win because Antiochus Epiphanes turns the temple. So this is um, what we think is the abomination of desolation predicted in the book of Daniel. By the way, the book of Daniel is the book of Daniel written by Daniel who is, a, who is from the tribe of Judah brought to Babylon and has a really long lifespan because he lives in both Babylon and Persia back around the, uh, I think he was brought to Babylon 597 B.C. Daniel is not um, a fake book that, that got inserted into the Old Testament. You know, that's just, again, liberal thought that, that how can God predict the future in a prophet? Oh, man, that, you have to understand that whenever you have these dating systems that say, you know, that, that one of the premises of liberals is that, is that you cannot have an inspired book so therefore, any prediction of the future cannot come to pass. Because it, it, so it had to be written after the fact and then post-dated, you know, post et cetera, like this. So, so, um, so, so, but if you read the book of Daniel, I think it's clearly pointing ahead to, to this historical period where Antiochus Epiphanes is the abomination of des desolation, des desecrates the temple. Well, Pompey, and if you understand where Jewish animosity would be towards Rome, Pompey, when he walks into Jerusalem, walks right into the Holy of Holies. Um, and, 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 and speaking about extra-biblical literature, when Pompey is murdered two years later, you see in extra-biblical literature, Jewish literature, ah, he got his because he desecrated the temple also. Okay, so, so some of the tension that you see between Rome and, and Judah and Galilee, etc., like that you see at the time of Jesus, um, goes all the way back to the way the Romans entered in the, in the first place. Because when, when the very first Roman ruler, so Pompey desecrates your temple, this is not good. Okay. So, um, okay. So now the Holy Land will be a, a Roman puppet state, especially under King Herod. And we'll talk about what happens after that, that um, after Herod dies, and King Herod is a quote-unquote great king, um, when, when you go around Israel, um, and, and of course we, we stu I studied in Israel, when you go around Israel, you, when you see grand places from the New Testament era, or around the New Testament era, you just say, boom, Herod built it. You know, just place after place, how many palaces did God build, and, and just a tremendous builder, and stuff like this, but the Romans will, will be suspicious, so they want to set, they, Rome is very suspicious that, that Herod, that not to set up a Herod dynasty, and so they break up Herod's kingdom to four parts, and Judah itself is administered directly as underneath the Roman governor, and hence the Pontius Pilate at the time of Jesus. Okay. Take a breath, Schumacher. Okay, so any questions about, I've, I've gone from Malachi to Matthew. Yes, go ahead. Yes, great question. And look, Steven Spielberg has the answer. Okay, so, so okay, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah, so, so you don't, okay. The ark disappears. It's not there in the second temple. Um, so there's three, three main theories what happened to the ark. One, 
when Nebuchadnezzar and the troops destroyed Jerusalem, temples destroyed, Ark was destroyed. Two, um, the, the, because the Ark is so special, when they see that Jerusalem is going to be besieged under Nebuchadnezzar, it's hidden. Potentially, it's hidden somewhere on what we can now call the Temple Mount. But guess what you cannot do right now? Because the Temple Mount is, is one of the three holy places of all of Islam. You cannot do archaeology, so we won't know. So potentially, it's hidden somewhere, you know, deep, some, because there would have been little caves and some of this, and, 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 and it's hidden. Or three, it was taken away, potentially with other... Others of Judah took it away when they got away to Egypt and so went over to Africa. Those are the three main theories what happened to the Ark of the Covenant. But at the time, in the second temple period, the Holy of Holies is empty. Of course, this stupefies uh, Pompey, walks in and sees this empty area um, at, when he walks into the Holy of Holies. What's, what's, why is this the Holy of Holies if it's empty? But you still have the curtain, you still have the Day of Atonement. So I think they're just sprinkling blood on the walls. I think um, blood of the bull and the gold on the Day of Atonement. Okay, Ark of the Covenant. That's a great question, actually. Um, and so, no, I'm just kidding about Steven Spielberg. We have, we have no idea. And so, so if, you know, if, if you, uh, um, you know, if you, like, probably 2 a.m., you know, on, on April 2nd of some year, if you turn on the History Channel, they'll have some, you know, they'll, they'll, you know some guy speaking like some sort of expert and, and you, know, you know, interviewing some other so-called experts telling you what the History Channel thinks about about where the Ark is, so I'm just kidding around, because some of the stuff, like, uh, the, you know, space invaders, you know, aliens, I mean, the History Channel is not exactly. Okay, um, this is being recorded, by the way, so, so, I, so, I, so I've got a knock on my door, some guy dressed in a black suit, so, okay. Okay, um, let's talk about Hellenism. Any questions about the, this time period? You know, how we go, the, as I was thinking about this lesson, I said, I could talk all about this, and so, there's a lot of intrigue. Actually, it's fascinating history, but the main thing is to get you understanding what is the world of Jesus, and how is it different from, from the time that it's just... Did somebody else have a question? Do I see a hand in the back? Okay. Okay, so, um, Hellenism. Oh, man. Um, okay. Hellenism, the... the um, the, Greek, uh, the Greek word for Greek is Hellene. Okay, so, so Hellenism would be the Greek influence, and so Alexander is, is, is influential. By the way, Alexander, his father Philip, could actually hire a pretty good tutor for him. Who is Alexander's tutor? Who knows this? Aristotle. Aristotle is Alexander's tutor, you know. Um, not a bad tutor, right? So, so, so Aristotle is... So Alexander is well steeped in, in classical Greek understanding and, and, and history, and, and along with him would be these four rulers. And so, so once Alexander conquers, it really has a sea change. For example, um, he's rise of something called Koine Greek. Um, and Koine Greek would be kind of simple Greek. Um, I remember... Um, many, 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 many years ago, I was uh, I just, you know, I, I had the, my Eurail pass. I was traveling to Europe and I talked to a woman, and I um, can't remember what, what language she spoke, and she didn't speak in English, I didn't speak her language, but we both knew a little bit of French. So we spoke in French. But what type of French would I speak? For somebody else who's not a native French, it would be very simple, right? 
So there's developers, it's kind of Greek, called Koine Greek. It's rather, rather simple. The, the grammar is much simpler. The vocabulary becomes more narrow. It becomes the, the language of, of second language speakers. In our modern world, what has now become the language of business around the world is, is English. Man, you see English speakers all over the place. But if you're not a native English speaker, it might be difficult, especially not necessarily for university trained, because you talk to somebody who's really university trained at a higher level, their English is, is excellent. However, at lower level, you know, shopkeepers, stuff like this, their English is, is, is not so good. So Koine Greek is rather simplified Greek, but it is Greek. And no language can bear the freight of another language in its totality. Um, and, and, and more than this, is that Greek thinking is entirely different. Okay, um, Greek thinking, for example, this is very, very important to understand Greek thinking, has this idea of, of there, there, there is some idea of, of a God, maybe a universal God in, in Greek thought, but this God is far, far removed from our, our reality. Okay, this is especially seen in Plato. And so this God does not interact directly with the material world. And so if God is, he has to have intermediate um, things, for example, one would be um, you know, so maybe an intermediate sphere or something like this. And so this is where some, some of the early church heresies come from. That would be after the time of Jesus. But it permeates this, this whole, whole Greek thinking is that, is that flesh, is, flesh is bad, spirit is good. This dichotomy. And you still see this even in our modern world. You know, this, this idea, for example, but, uh, and it's the most blatant form is in a Snickers commercial, right? You know, you've got to wait till you get to heaven, right, on a cloud. So what do you have to do? You have to eat a Snickers bar, right? I mean, so, so this idea of, of heaven being in the clouds and stuff like this is a, a very anti-biblical term. You know, New Testament speaks about heaven is, from, is, the death, is the origination point of Jesus Christ when he comes back and brings us into a new heavens and a new earth, very physical place. And this is kind of an Old Testament way of thinking. But Greek thinking has this big divide between spiritual and physical, and that permeates a lot of Greek thought. And so Greek philosophy um, creates this big divide in the world where, where it's harder to, to come to grasp with this concreteness of the Old Testament. Um, and then also, um, there is now the challenge, because what you're now seeing is that increasingly to be a, a faithful Jew, you're in a larger world, you're not in an isolated world, and it's a challenge to be faithful once you're in, in as an isolated believer in a larger world. We sit here in the western suburbs of Chicago, especially you have a lot of parents here. How do you raise your children in the faith in this increasingly, increasingly hostile world? It's a very, very difficult thing. And so, so there's reactions to that, but reactionary living is tough. And by the way, it's one of the problems of our modern church is we live in reaction to an outside world. We no longer have these little, little German-speaking farming communities with this dear hair pastor, and the farmers, you know, bring their kids to confirmation and stuff like this. It's very isolated German-speaking communities. That's our Missouri Senate, right? We now live here in Naperville, and all sorts of outside influences, the, the perverted sexual morality, outside influences are, are permeate. And so this is somewhat the challenge of being a Jew in this ancient world and how they respond to it. We'll talk about that. Um, one other thing, a couple of minutes right here, is because you lose your language, now the Old Testament becomes translated, especially into Greek. That's called the Septuagint. 
Septuagint comes from a Greek word for 70. And so supposedly Septuagint, the 70 or 72, uh, and Alexandria translated, and there, there it is. Septuagint is hugely important. And the Septuagint would also include, depending on the Septuagint version you look at, would include more books than our Old Testament. Okay, so this is, this is a, another issue. So over in Egypt, Alexander fi- builds this tremendous city called Alexandria. Of course, in Alexandria is the famous library, and so a lot of Jews would have been there, and so that's where kind of the center of, of Egyptian and Judaism is, so Septuagint is Greek translation, but there are many, many people, many Jews in the ancient world who do not know Hebrew, and so this becomes their, their Bible. You do not know Hebrew and Greek, so what is your Bible? It's an English Bible. And of course, we, now, now largely speaking, we have the ESV, but you'll hear Pastor Clemmer and I sometimes talk about how we might maybe differ with an ESV translation, because it's not the Hebrew or Greek. So now they're doing it the Septuagint right, right there. Um, and then, we've got a couple more minutes. Um, something else that happens, because you're now separated from Jerusalem, you're separated from the temple, you're living hundreds of miles away. You might, if possible, get to Jerusalem at some point in time in your life, especially if the, the male Jew might get to Jerusalem one or more times in his lifetime for one of the holy days. The three holy days being Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. These are the three high feasts. So object is, if you're Jewish male especially, get to Jerusalem for one of those high holy days at some point in time in your life. But meanwhile, how do you maintain your Judaism would be in, in a place of prayer, and, and there's a little bit of development of that. It's called a synagogue. Synagogue get, get developed. And synagogue, by the way, does not correspond to the temple. The temple still would have been there. Modern-day synagogues have a problem that had to be dealt with after 70 AD. What do you do when there's no sacrificial system at all? And so Judaism has to develop after 70 AD, but that's not entirely germane for our course, which is the New Testament itself. But there would have been synagogues anticipating going to the temple someday, recognizing the sacrifices are being done on a daily basis, very important, but then you have a rabbi, that is a teacher who teaches you the word of God. So synagogues become places of prayer, they develop kind of a a, a liturgy, but it's always in association with thinking about there is a temple in Jerusalem at this time, okay? Now, I've, I've really oversimplified things, and that's kind of the nature of what we're doing. Yes, Dave? Yeah. How, and it was a simplified, yeah. how does Paul write Romans, which is pretty deep theology? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, so the question is, how does Paul write Romans using this simple, when they great, but when I say simple, um, when you look, for example, to, to classical Greek and have to read like Aristotle and Plato, uh, you know, the sentences can be this long. However, for example, the book of Hebrews, the first sentence is, is six verses long. There's a famous passage in the book of, of Ephesians where the ESV not only divides it into different sentences, but even sets their, their chapter head, their, their little subtitles in the chapter in, in, in the middle of a Greek sentence. And say, no, don't do this. You know. <coughs> but it's still rather complicated. You still carry it out. And some, when I say Koine Greek, depending on what New Testament author you're writing or what extra biblical author you're writing, some of their writing style can be rather, rather much closer to classical Greek. 
Just like if you think about our English language has evolved over time, but even right now, you can read an English writer writing for an American audience and have some, some much more difficult style, much larger vocabulary than somebody else. So that's, that's what, what it would be. And so when you read the New Testament, I mean, you know, uh, you know after, after one year of Greek, I could read the, the Gospel of 1 John. I mean, the Epistle of 1 John, which is rather simple. Um, I couldn't touch the book of Hebrews after a year of Greek. The book of Hebrews is, is much, the Greek is much, much harder, but still is Koine Greek. It still doesn't match what you see there. And what you see when you actually get the New Testament, though, and I'll maybe end on this, is, is that the New Testament Greek, you can see oftentimes that reflects Hebrew thinking. And this is a very important point. In other words, the, the grammar kind of matches the, the word, for, the, you see kind of a, a matching word order that you might see in an Old Testament passage, and stuff like this, even though it's not a direct quote. But you see, so Hebraism is all over the place. In other words, they've adapted Koine Greek with the underlying Hebrew. You can readily see it at sometimes the New Testament. Other times it's a little bit more difficult. And I don't want to make this too hard or too deep. There's so much to go in. Um, we, we have to discuss how do we get the Old Testament as the Old Testament, okay? Why can we trust it? Uh, Jews, I want to discuss this, this whole, how do we go from Judah to Jewish, right? How does Jew Judaism develop? So, so what do we speak about in the New Testament era when Jesus is born? There's the Pharisees, Sadducees, the Essenes, and what, what's going on here? And, and I'll give you briefly an understanding how we move from the religion of the Old Testament to Jude Judaism. For example, the Pharisees have 613 oral law codes. It's a Pharisee. 613 oral law codes. What? Next week, right? Okay. Okay, thank you. Okay, same bat time, same bat channel, right? Okay.